G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. I had to think about this the other day, and I thought maybe when we get to a thousand uh, uh, reviews, then then I'll, then I'll stop asking people. But we're, we've we've got over seven hundred to go, so so we're still uh, we're still still a bit short. Um, so um, yeah, if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review that would be great obviously a five-star review um would be fantastic and gets the podcast out to the people that actually want to listen to it which is which is hopefully you um so really appreciate if you could take a few minutes of your time to do that so uh, joining um myself in the in the studio today uh, we have tom greensmith uh, one of our lecturers here in emergency critical care at the rvc um thank you tom for for uh, for coming in not a problem and what we're going to talk about is uh, is aspiration pneumonia, and I think it's uh, something that we, we we probably as a service see quite uh, quite often. Um, yet there's there's probably not a huge amount of information really um, on it. Would that would that be fair enough? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, we yeah see it every day. So um, so if if I if, if, would you mind just sort of briefly going over what your um, uh, understanding is, I suppose, of the pathogenesis of aspiration pneumonia, like how, how patients might get this and what patients might be predisposed, please? Yeah, certainly. So I suppose, um, first off, we have to kind of uh, decide whether we're talking about pneumonia or pneumonitis, which in humans they, they will actually sort of separate out. We're far worse, I think, at separating the two apart, and we kind of lump everything in as an aspiration pneumonia, but a pneumonitis um, essentially just inflammation of the, the lung parenchyma, whereas a pneumonia normally is going to be, you've got, whether it's bacterial, fungal, viral, etc., you've got some um, etiology in there that is causing disease, and the aspiration part means that the way that's gotten in there is by being essentially uh, inhaled down and deposited in, often the lower airways, and then setting up disease that way. And so, in terms of patients who are predisposed, I suppose, first off, you need to be uh, vomiting or regurgitating. Um, important first steps for being at risk for aspiration. Um, and then other things are going to include any kind of disorder of the, you know, the pharynx, so crowded pharynx, brachycephalic dogs, those sorts of things. Uh, if you have disorders that mean you're less able to protect your airway, so you know neurological impairment, um, laryngeal paralysis, you know laryngeal disease, etc. Um, I think those are going to be the the majority of your kind of predisposing things. But then you you have the various categories that you sort of lump multiple diseases into. So you know vomiting, regurgitation. Is it that you've got parvovirus? Do you have a raging enteritis? Do you have megaesophagus, etc., etc.? Um, so there's an awful lot of predisposing causes to it. And of course, us, we can cause it when we give, you know, uh, intoxicated dogs, certainly over the uh, Christmas period, give them apomorphine to make them vomit. Um, although very rare to cause a problem, you know, aspiration is one of the things that we do have to consider and worry about. And of course, that's why we do have some specific contraindications to doing that in those situations. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and do, do you. Um is there a certain sort of bacteria that are more sort of predisposed? Do we do we know in the in the patient population that we that we have? So, I mean, yes. Quite often, it's going to be things like gastrointestinal um, bacteria. So, you know, classic things you're going to see are things like E. coli, 
um, Klebsiella pneumoniae, those sorts of things. It will vary depending on if the patient, uh, you know, has this. They acquire this outside of hospital. Um, so, you know, dog running around vomits very unlucky gets aspiration pneumonia. Probably have a different flora in there to one of our patients who's been in the ICU for ten days, who's been on multiple antibiotics, has lots of resistant profiles, colonization of some horrible hospital-acquired sort of bugs, and then we'll probably have a very different pattern of bacteria um, growing. So you can ask when you speak uh, very eloquently about the difference between sort of pneumonitis and pneumonia. So you, in in your mind, do you, or, or clinically, would you always give a dog that has aspiration pneumonia potentially antibiotics, or maybe we'll, we'll jump to a few steps? But but I suppose like, do you how do you treat pneumonitis differently, or do you give it a bit of time? Um, yeah, it's tough because it's on a case by case basis. Uh, but um, I don't always give them antibiotics. I can remember one patient who had um, who had definitely aspirated. We when we washed the the lungs, we got sort of um, fibres and fungi out of there because it been eating compost, and we found that inside the lung. Could see all the bacteria there, but decided not to give the dog any antibiotics because thought, well. This dog's going to wake up in two hours' time. It should be able to cough. It's a young, healthy dog. It's probably got an aspiration pneumonitis. So we kept a close eye on him and made sure that actually it didn't ever develop into anything. And he never needed antibiotics, went home, was fine. Um, so for me, it's going to be if we've got a patient who has you know, severe sort of um, difficulty with the lung performing its functions, so oxygenation primarily, uh, or if we have you know, marked pyrexia or a marked sort of inflammatory response in terms of your white cells going up, although they don't have to go up in every case, and you can still have a pneumonia, um, so it doesn't doesn't always tell you the answer. Um, or more recently, you can use things like CRP um, to try and tell the difference. But again, although CRP is very good for it goes up if you're a bit inflamed, it doesn't tell you much more than that. You do have some patients where they're very inflamed and it doesn't go up, so I wouldn't use that in every case. So that's why it has to be um, looking at every every sort of aspect of the patient and then deciding. I suppose the thing is, do I think? I can get away without giving antibiotics or it's safe to, to not give them, um, then I'll try not to. If I think, you know what, this patient, he's got megaesophagus, he's you know not going to be able to cough properly, he's going to you know, re-aspirate repeatedly, that is probably a patient that's not going to clear it very well, even if it is a pneumonitis and probably will develop a pneumonia, that might be one where I'd be more proactive in giving antimicrobials to them. Um, but it, it's very varied, I've got to be honest. No, fair enough. And, and I suppose that's always the uh, the art of clinical medicine, isn't it? There's always going to be a variability amongst that. And I suppose at, this, at the same time, maybe it'd be worthwhile to talk about do you um, consider it's important to get a representative sample, so by a transcranial wash or blind BAL or, or bronchoscopically guided BAL, or do you, does it depend on the individual animal, whether it's the first time, whether it's a repeat offender, whether they're pyrexic or neutrophilic or neutropenic? Do, does it, is that variable as well? I know that we very much deal with a, a different patient population and, and as, a, as more like a referral, and maybe they have other things going on, but what what have you done previously and does is that different with the patient population that we have yeah it's completely different um before i yeah before i was here uh, when i was sort of out in practice as an emergency vet if an owner brought an animal into me and that patient had you know some kind of breathing difficulty had a temperature had a reason to be predisposed to aspiration pneumonia i'd pop the ultrasound machine on the chest look if we have consolidated lung you know if we did i'd say right we pretty likely to have aspiration pneumonia i'm going to choose some empiric therapy and not necessarily go ahead and try and take an airway sample at that time because it hopefully is community acquired not hospital acquired and so it's hopefully um you know 
a, a nice susceptible organism. Uh, and I would normally, in that case, you know, happily reach for the amoxiclav, as I think we all we all would, because its broad specs can penetrate quite nicely. Um, now, because we get a scent, obviously referrals coming into us, these patients might be having recurrent bouts, or they might have multiple comorbidities. If we are able to, both safety-wise and financial-wise, I'd always like to try and get some kind of a sample. Um, a lot of people are worried from the safety aspect of it, but I suppose there's ways around that. So, like you said doing transtracheal wash where we have a patient who is awake and sort of a you know a bit of local put in the the neck a catheter into the trachea um then sort of down into the airways a little lung wash you can do that in a lot of these patients if they're compliant very easily um of course you're hoping that you get the right area maybe you don't maybe you do maybe you get something grow but it's the wrong kind of bacteria it's the wrong area and that's one of the things that you have to sort of deal with um the absolute best case scenario i suppose would always be to have you know a bronchoscopically guided bronchoalveolar lavage. Um, that is not something I think we do very frequently. Uh, it's something our medicine team do very frequently and are very good at. Um, but I think for us, the, the middle ground is going to be, um, you know, we might just anesthetize a patient to do various imaging, whether it's CT or other tests, etc. And as part of that, say, well, look, let's try and get the most bang for buck here and let's put a sterile ET tube in. Let's do a blind entrotracheal wash via that ET tube. Hopefully, we've already isolated which hemithorax is most likely the more diseased. And we try and then put the patient, you know, that side down, go in, hoping that gravity will take the, the tip of the probe where it needs to go. Um, you know, instill the fluid, lavage, suck back, and hope. And I think quite frequently we do get a representative sample in those cases. I mean, in people they've got all sorts of fancy things like protected cyto brushes and those sorts of stuff as well that they can use that I know they found differences in terms of what they grow and how representative that is. I don't think we're anywhere near that level yet, but um, for me I think transtracheal and blind entrotracheal are what I use now, but I would not feel bad um, before coming here, and I still wouldn't feel bad now if an owner said, I've got no money, it's a first offender. Um, I'd go with Empiric Amoxiclav as long as all the other signs are there and it, and it fits with actually it being clinical disease for hopefully a bacterial pneumonia. So do you believe one of our uh, students recently did a did a project sort of looking at as aspiration pneumonia or, or, or sampling and BALs uh, blind versus bronchoscopically guided? And, and I don't think there was too much of a difference or not statistical difference in um, uh, from, from the study that hasn't been published in, in actually the, uh, using bronchoscopy, bronchoscopy or a, a blind BAL. But I, but I imagine looking at our population because we would predominantly do the blind BALs. We predominantly do the blind BALs because of aspiration pneumonia. Then maybe the our success is quite high because we there is likely to be something yeah. something yeah. there. Um, but and, and I suppose we 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 don't know. But it'd be good to ask that question, wouldn't it, of whether that is actually representative of what's going on? We we assume so. Yeah, it makes me feel better about uh, about being happy doing sort of blind washes. In fairness, there, there you go. There's only one thing I just wanted to, to point out as well, because I've just realised that we've been talking about this and talking about you know antibiotics and, and bacteria and things, and I suppose because we're talking about aspiration pneumonia, it probably rings true that you're expecting it to be bacteria from the GI tract that's sort of your most causal organism. But you do have to make sure that actually it is an aspiration pneumonia in terms of its distribution inside the lung, and it's not some crazy dog that's just got off a flight from America and is riddled with you know fungal pneumonia or something like that, because of course then our therapy is going to be completely inappropriate. 
absolutely absolutely and uh, you speak uh, as well about like using ultrasound um to to sort of help with the diagnosis and do you do you think that you know ultrasound or radiographs are complementary in the in this matter or do you think it depends on the on the user and their sort of confidence with both techniques so i think whenever we talk about anything like thoracic ultrasound it's always going to come down to um the user whilst you know, I think it's very easy for anyone to be happy popping a probe on the chest and seeing if there's fluid in there. Being able to evaluate lung tissue when there's no fluid inside the chest is, I think, much more of a defined skill. It's one that's very easy to grasp, um, but it's one that I think you know, people will be a little more concerned about. Personally, I'm happy normally to, to make most sort of first-time diagnoses, most rapid diagnoses within, say, an hour of admit of a patient who's got supporting clinical evidence using ultrasound. Because if I see clear consolidation of the, you know, the ventral aspect of the lung, um, but no, you know, no changes to lung parenchyma dorsally, it's pretty unlikely there's much else it's going to be. Now, sure, I can go and take radiographs, but you might actually find that your radiographs look normal at that stage because we know they can lag behind the clinical picture. Um, similarly, if you find a couple of isolated, you know, what we call B-lines, so the lung rockets inside the lung, I'm not really going to think that's particularly supportive of aspiration pneumonia because you know, a normal patient can have those. What I'm really expecting to see is what looks like liver inside of the chest, so you know, hepatised lung, completely collapsed, consolidated lung. Um, and if I see that in the right area, I'm pretty, pretty happy. Um, I think radiographs are always nice if you get the lovely air bronchograms, but I have frequently found that, you know, a few hours after they've aspirated, we'll see it on, on ultrasound before we see it on radiographs, and then we'll see the classic pattern on radiographs maybe, you know, six, 12 hours later, uh, at which point then you've had to, you know, sedate them, get some radiographs, spend more money, etc. So I do quite lo- like doing it on ultrasound. Um, but if I've got a difficult case, one that's been in with us for a long time, and I'm not convinced it's that, you know, they've been recumbent, and so they could have some collapse of lung lobe, then I'm probably more likely to say, well, I want radiographs to be sure. Um, in those cases, I suppose. And, and also maybe when uh, we talked a bit about transtracheal wash and, and blind endotracheal wash, have you ever um, <clears throat> done an FNA of the actual lung tissue if it is consolidated to try and get a representative bacterial sample of that? Yes, yeah, we absolutely have done. Um, don't do it anywhere near as commonly as the other ones because you do need to have complete collapse of the lung lobe and you need to have someone that's happy enough with a needle to poke that needle into lung, not go too far but obviously not miss the, the area after. Um, so thankfully our imaging team are super. Um, I don't think I'd be particularly happy doing that myself, uh, even though I'm very happy putting sharp things into dangerous places you know, on a, a routine basis. That's just a bit too scary um, for me. So I do have to have a, a reasonably well-consolidated area to put um, a needle into it. But yeah, I can remember we've had quite a few cases when you know we haven't been happy that we're going to get to it because it's a strange location or something, and maybe it's maybe it's not down by the right middle lung lobe, which is of course where the a blind wash is more likely to sort of lead itself. Say it's left dorsal because they were lying on the left side for a GA or something, um, then actually getting a, an FNA might be more likely to give us a sample. And then maybe we're going to again cause a bit of uh, um, I don't say controversy, but I suppose there's not necessarily a right answer for for sort of length of time of antibiotics and, and potentially sort of what antibiotics you choose, and it probably depends on you know what country you're in whether you want uh, um, something that is going to be um, in, you know, intravenous or, or already administered as as well. So has has your idea of uh, antibiotics what to what to give and how long for sort of changed? Um, 
I don't think it has massively. I've always been a fan of quite short courses of antimicrobials. Um, and so again, if we have a, a patient come in, they've not had any antibiotics you know, in the last couple of months, they've got what we think is a bog standard aspiration pneumonia, I'm probably going to reach for amoxiclav, um, for which I'd normally give them you know, three intravenous doses a day, maybe four when we have the results of, uh, of uh, Maria's study. Um, to try and really hit that hard. If they have had um, antibiotics, specifically amoxiclav, within the last sort of, you know, two, three months, I might be more likely to reach empirically for something like Enro and Clinda. Um, and I think that, realistically, if one of those two combinations doesn't cover it, then we're down in maybe the last 10% of, of the the isolates that we see, because I think the vast majority of ones that we see will be covered by either giving them amoxiclab by itself or Clinda Enro as a combination. Um, I will still try and get my samples, obviously, because we are, uh, you know, bound to do so, patients coming here for referral. But if we can't do because of, of cost or safety, then I wouldn't feel bad about those empiric choices. Um, in terms of how long to give, I mean, it does depend how mild, I suppose, we are. You know, right now I've got a bit of a cough, I'm not going to have antibiotics, I've probably not got, hopefully, aspiration pneumonia. Um, but even in you know, human uh, medicine, when you're critically, critically ill, they might be giving you, you know, a week of IV antimicrobials, and then they might stop. It's not like these long extended courses that we're all used to. So uh, I know some books say, you know, a month or two months worth for aspiration pneumonia and rechecking with radiographs. I've never found that to be very useful advice. I must admit that normally I think we get away quite comfortably with a seven to ten day total course. Um, unless we have something particularly bizarre or we have you know, ongoing predisposing factors. Um, but I suppose you could always use CRP to try and guide your therapy or at least you know, just look at the patient and treat the patient rather than you know, following what a, what a book that was written 10 years ago sort of says. We, we definitely need uh, more evidence for these, uh, these you know, I suppose, relatively common diseases to actually work out sort of uh, the length of time of, uh, of antibiotics and yeah. what that means. And probably right, tailored to the individual would be good and whether that's based on something to do with their inflammatory state or, or CRP or, or, you know, how they're, how they're doing in general probably makes uh, a bit more sense. I suppose well, it's probably good for, um, or good to point out that, that we know the, uh, the kind of like the resistance profile of the bugs we have in our hospital, don't we? Yeah. And, and so, so potentiated moxicillin tends to be our, our first line, but we know pretty much that uh, actually, a, a, you know, if we do get resistance to our second line therapy, a lot of the bugs that we have are going to be sensitive to enrofloxin, which is probably not the same. Uh, everywhere in the world or in, yeah, everywhere absolutely. In, the, in, the, in the country. So I suppose it's probably quite important to know uh, if you can, you know, the, the, the kind of resistance profiles that you get if you have a, a large hospital and and, uh, and and do you have quite a bit of antibiotics floating around. Yeah. So, um, so are there any questions you particularly want to um, find out about uh, about aspiration pneumonia? Where, where do you think that we should go to in the, in the future? So is there any um, any things that we, you'd like to burning questions if you'd like that you'd like to work out burning questions um, well I mean it's always nice to have more evidence to feel more comfortable with the decisions you're making isn't it? it's so often that we make decisions I think based off very little evidence and then maybe after we've been doing that for some time and it seems to have worked we said ah let's go and make sure that this is the right approach I mean 
I'd like it if we could do some some proper studies and we could look at sort of courses and we could see if we do have you know parameters like CRP, white cell count, pyrexia, if they actually do help or not because they are so generic, um, and that would make me feel a lot a lot happier. Uh, I suppose I think that's probably my only my only major burning sort of thing from aspiration pneumonia to be honest. Do you, I, I suppose I, I get a bit concerned with the. Um the brachycephalics that we see that tend to be the repeat offenders and and you know how often we end up potentially throwing antibiotics at these guys and maybe you know we do need shorter courses and or maybe need to look at the problem slightly differently and that that is one of yeah my concerns but yeah we don't i don't think we have a huge amount of information how to make the best decisions in these patients yeah absolutely well, um, thank you very much, Tom. I think we'll wrap it up there, unless you have any um, uh, any other things you think we haven't actually covered. No, no, it's been lovely chatting with you. It's been it's been fantastic. Well, thank you very much. So we'll wrap it up there, and many thanks for your time today to listeners as well. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you won't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you leave us a review, five-star review would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any other friends, and we'll place a, a couple of show notes in the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, you can get in touch. You can either email dbarfield rvc.ac.uk or you can tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.